Oh, yeah. <laughs> Happy 420. It's Friday. Well, we have jobs. I'm lots of shit to do. She has shit to do. I don't got shit to do. <laughs> everyone welcome to another episode of reclaiming the weekly podcast where we spark a revolution from the inside out i'm sarah my pronouns are she her i'm a writer a witch and a pole dancer in la and i'm really happy to have you here this week and i have someone very special it's my first actual interview and i'm so excited it is the one and only eric i'm a little paranoid i don't know if it was just the 420 specials, but uh, You're scared. I'm a little nervous. You're a little nervous. Why is that to be on a feminist podcast? No, <laughs> not at all. It's not it. I like women. Uh, yeah, yeah, you do. Um, so I just wanted to uh, do a little housekeeping before we get into the topic, which is our 420 topic. Eric, what's our topic this week? The first rule of this podcast is do not talk. To cops. Don't fucking talk to cops. The second rule <laughs> of this podcast is do not fucking talk to cops. Um, if you're a new listener, welcome. Uh, we are so happy to have you here. If you're a, re- a veteran reclaimer, thank you so much. I love you. Please continue to share this podcast with your friends. I love you so much. Also, before we get into it this week, I just wanted to make sure you're signed up for reclaiming the newsletter. Hits your inbox every Monday. Same with this podcast. The two really uh, go together, the newsletter and the podcast. So I highly recommend if you do one and not the other that you get on it and yeah I, I mean I think everyone here is just at least the podcast so I'm gonna send out that same message to the, to the newsletter people too um, and if you are not signed up once again please do uh, you can sign up at the website reclaimeffingeverything.com that's reclaim e-f-f-i-n-g everything.com also if you could please head to Spotify or Apple give this podcast a five star rating and review I would be so indebted to you uh, Eric we're on drugs. We've talked about this before in our past podcast. We have, and it will probably be spoken about many more times. Well, okay, so Eric is our resident, like, 70s political slash cultural history expert here. Um, Eric, can you kind of walk me through the beginning of the war on drugs? <clears throat> the mainline war on drugs that, you know, I think people, you know, refer to in common dialogue or whatever is, you know, the, the government mandated operation that began in the early seventies, uh, and it has completely failed in its stated objectives of curbing drug use and ending the drug trade in America. Uh, you know, it came about a lot after the seventies or during the seventies, you know, with Vietnam and everything and, you know, all the heroin that was being brought back from over there as well as other, you know, more local stateside things, you know, here's looking at you LA um but well, wasn't you know the wasn't the whole thing with um Nixon using uh the national emergency you know from veterans coming back all like addicted to heroin wasn't that kind of like the siren call a little bit like there might have been some truth to it but it was really just also a scare tactic that Nixon and the Republicans used back then 
It was definitely a scare tactic. I mean, they're, you know, sure, drug use did, you know, explode after and during Vietnam, you know, with, like I said, you know, all the heroin being brought back. And it was in 1971, actually, that he passed uh, through Congress the Controlled Substances Act, which created the five schedules of the different drugs based. The risk of addiction, right? Yeah, based on. The risk of addiction. Based on risk of addiction. So, you know, Schedule One are, you know, the hardcore narcotics, you know, like heroin, uh, crack cocaine. And also marijuana. Yeah. Oh my God. It's, it's just still, the stupidest thing ever. It's still federally labeled a Schedule One controlled substance. They also declared um, drug abuse and addiction as public enemy number one in the 70s. I feel like, sure, yeah, but there's also a lot of other risks in the 1970s. <laughs> I mean, I feel like they kind of did that in 1971, right after the 60s passed, and the guys that passed this Controlled Substance Act were probably the ones that couldn't score any good drugs in the first place, and they're like, well, they're if we all, can't get drugs, you can't have drugs. It. They were salty about it. Wouldn't be surprised <laughs> if it, that was partially true. Yeah. Well, so after that announcement, um, they basically, the government proposed um, really strict measures for drug-related crimes, uh, including mandatory minimum sentences for drug possession and distribution. And then uh, that's two years later was when they um, founded the DEA, which was basically just special cops that were designed to enforce their drug uh, policies through any means that they felt necessary. I mean, that leads to, you know, um, wiretapping, uh, all sorts of other invasive surveillance acts, uh, following people, uh, looking through closed windows even, and literally just if they think that you might be on drugs or distributing drugs or what have you, they could easily have somebody following you and wiretapping you. And you wouldn't even know. So basically, there was, I actually read, it was really interesting. I read that President Nixon's former domestic policy chief, um, I can't, John Ehrlichman, Ehrlichman, um, Ehrlichman, I guess it's Ehrlichman. <laughs> but I, I smoked a bowl, okay? Um, the, the Nixon campaign actually didn't intend it to be about drug reform, but instead, and we'll get into this, um, it was meant to oppress anti-war left and black people. Like, that is blatant, like, all right, fuck these people. If you're not with us, you're against us. And shit, we all know that you guys use drugs. So easy target, yeah, mandatory, really mandatory minimum sentence well, to get these people off the streets. It's really interesting to me um, because, you know, we just watched Office Space last night and you know, the song, mm -hmm. damn, it feels good to be a gangsta. That if you listen to the lyrics really closely on that song, um, he just talks about like, you know, being like getting to the into the White House and, um, you know, you get all these drugs and send them to the poor communities um, so that you can bust them. Like, that's literally what this song is about. It's really interesting. It makes me think of that. That's just basically what it was like. Oh, we don't want poor people. We don't want mentally affected, mentally ill individuals. We don't want um, women, as we'll see, as are disproportionately um, affected by the war on drugs. And we don't want any of those people, black women. We don't want any of those people. So we're just going to we know that drugs are it. So we'll just make sure that the drugs flow and then we can bust them for it and send them behind bars. Well, I, so, I mean, it's it's, it's also 
it's also interesting with, you know, some of the legislation, like actually about that. I mean, I, I think it was Reagan's legislation uh, in particular that said that uh, the mandatory sentence for possession of five grams of crack cocaine, which was, you know, disproportionate disproportionately consumed by the African-American community. Again, here's looking at ULA. Uh, that triggered an automatic five-year jail sentence. Boom. For five just for grams. Possess- just, just for possessing it? Just for possessing it. And that's five grams. Five that's, fucking years. That's not Non-violent. a lot, really. And what I want to what I want to point out is that five grams is not a lot. Um, whereas the minimum uh, sentence for carrying up to 500 grams of powder cocaine was five years. So you have. Oh, the, so basically the, nothing for for crack cocaine, which was mostly black people. Right. And people of color in poor communities and stuff. Whereas the powder white cocaine was all done by rich white people. 500 grams, which 500 is 100. Grams. Like, that's a fucking pound. That's like a whole party and a half and like, a, you know, a frat house or something. <laughs> I mean, that's. They wouldn't that's even, a pound yeah, that's so, of that's cocaine. So wild. That's a lot versus five grams. Literally. <laughs> I mean, that's. That's just insane. I mean, that's how is that not targeted at specific people? Like you're like, hey, you know, like if you can get the good stuff, you can have a lot of the good stuff. But if you get shit, sorry, sorry, you're out of luck. You're fucked. Five years. Bye. Okay, so. Okay, so that was in the 70s and 80s. I can actually speak a little bit to the 90s um, just because that's kind of my era. But actually, Bill Clinton, uh, he when he was elected, he ran on a tough-on-crime platform. And in 1984, he passed the Crime Bill, which was 30 a $30 billion piece of legislation that funded 125,000 new state prison cells, mandated life sentences for three-strike laws, and added 60 new crimes worthy of the death penalty. Between... 1980 and 1997, the number of people locked up for nonviolent drug-related crimes rose from 500 or 50,000 to 400,000. And that's absolutely insane. 50,000 to 400,000 people in almost 20 years. I mean, the whole the tough on crime thing is such bullshit too. It is bullshit and mandated life sentences for three strike laws. I mean, are you kidding me? Like you could do five years just for having five grams of something on you. And let's say you have uh, two other strikes for whatever reason. Maybe they're also just random drug related, you know, nonviolent drug offenses. You're, you're in life now. You're, you're, you're in there for life now. It, once you're out, you have no options. Oh yeah. Once, once they do let you out, you're absolutely fucked. So really quickly, before we move on, I just wanted to talk about the fourth amendment. It's basically a measure that's intended to limit the power of law enforcement um, for unlawful search and seizure and search and arrest. Um, so unlike other crimes, drug offenses don't typically have complaining witnesses. Um, so the, these are the people that come forward to request police assistance. The parties are mostly, mostly consenting participants who want to hide their drug art, uh, activity. So in order to unearth drug crimes, the police have to wiretap, surve- surveil, peer through windows, you know, like you said, flyover houses, do undercover stings, bribery, uh, bribe their informants, um, entrap people by, you know, offering to buy or sell drugs. There's so many other shitty, shady things that the police, the police do. <laughs> the police. The police. <laughs> I like that. Fucking police. Police. <laughs> Oh, my God. Um, So basically, I just wanted to touch on that. Like like Eric said, it's decimated the Fourth Amendment and it's made it so cops can just watch what you do. What you know, it just gave cops so much more power to do that. They have unlimited power and resources to do it. 
I mean, even if they just suspect that you're, that you're doing it, I mean, how, how many times are there, you know, illegal wiretapping, you know, things going on or illegal surveillance? I mean, yeah. Well, it's and I remember um so I want to keep everything you know as private as possible, but I did uh know a cop that one time told me that cops didn't even give a shit about weed, but when what they really liked about it being um illegal was that if they smelled it, they could uh when they pulled someone over, if they smelled just a little whiff of it, they could it's pull someone cause. over to search. Yeah. And then they'd usually always find something else he said. So that's, they didn't even give a fuck about weed, but they, they didn't want it to be legal because it led to bigger arrests for them. And that makes a lot of sense. I mean, there's a lot of times, you know, I mean, let's say, you know, there's a house party or something, uh, you know, some people, yeah, they're probably out on the porch smoking a joint, maybe they're on the couch smoking a joint, but there's probably somebody in one of those bedrooms that has something else, that's yeah. got something else. Yeah. So I also wanted to talk about how the war on drugs is a feminist issue. And it's funny because Eric and I were just talking about this and I don't think the feminist part of it, the how, how it affected women actually gets really any light of day. I don't think people really cover that. So I wanted to kind of talk about that today because I think it really, really is a feminist issue um, for lots of reasons. And um, it's good to know. It's really good to know. So basically, the war on drugs has led to, uh, first of all, very disproportionate incarceration for women, especially women of color. There's been a significant increase in the number of women in prisons and jails. Many of them are mothers themselves who are separated from their families and children. Uh, the female incarcerated population stands at over six times higher than in 1980. And that tracks, right? with all the laws and everything that we were talking about and funding that happened through the 70s and 80s and 90s, like it's jumped that much. The female incarcerated population actually is over half, 58%, um, have kids under the age of 18. So they're all, so many of them are mothers, almost more than half of them. Almost two thirds of the people, the women in prison are mothers with kids under 18. Between 1980 and 2021, the number of incarcerated women increased by more than 525%. That's a lot, folks. That is rising from a total of 26,000 in 1980 to 168,000 in 2021. There was a little like downtick of it in COVID um, because of the pandemic, but it basically jumped back up with a 10% increase in 2021. Well, they had to meet their quotas again. Oh they had to bump those yeah. numbers back up. <laughs> Though many men are actually in prison than women, the rate of growth, uh, and I didn't know that this for female imprisonment has been twice as high as that of men since 19. There are approximately 976,000 women, that's almost a million, under the supervision of the criminal justice system. And it's worse for women of color. In 2021, the imprisonment rate was 1.6 times higher than for black women than it was for white women and 1.3 times higher for Latinx women uh, compared to white women. And then, like we've said before, when these women and these people and these femme identifying folks leave prison, they face so many things that like they so many barriers and just bullshit obstacles once they leave, like getting, you know, safe housing and finding employment and getting an education or even getting kind of, you know, government uh, help, like if they need Medicaid or WIC or food stamps or whatever, it's it's really difficult for people who have been incarcerated. Well, there, um, I mean, so just to piggyback off that, I mean, there's still lots of laws, you know, about how, you know, once you're a felon, there are so yeah, many vote. places that you can't vote. And there's so many places that won't even hire you if yeah. you have that on your record, boom, automatically done over. And it's already nothing. hard for women and it's already hard for women of color. So add incarcerated with a drug offense on your record. 
I mean, that's that's horrible. And not to mention, these women are targeted. They're targeted. I mean, that just shows that that women have been targeted. They've been an untapped, you know, before the, the war on drugs, they were an untapped like part of the population. And now they're like, oh, we can get women too and really, really keep them down. Yeah. I mean, after, after all those drug laws, you know, from the seventies and the eighties, I mean, it made it a lot easier to, to incarcerate women. Uh, I mean, look, look at those numbers. I mean, you know, the 525% you know, jump in incarceration for women since what, 1980 is what it was like, that's absolutely wild. And you know, a lot of these are still nonviolent drug offenders, nonviolent, and still a lot of them live in States with mandatory three strike, three strike laws, the, the life sentence, like that's terrible. I mean, imagine, you know, your, your mother, your sister, your whoever going away for life because they got popped for weed a couple of times. Yeah, that's why. We're not even getting into the underlying reasons why people use drugs. Yeah, yeah, this is just We're not even talking about that. (laughs) There's any number of possible reasons where you could indulge in any sort of mind-altering substance. You know what? The one answer is just because you fucking wanted to try it. Yeah. Cool, great, do it responsibly. But in so many states, it's so illegal and they have those minimum minimum sentences, mandatory minimum sentences. I mean, that's we, so we got to do away with that. First off, set, yeah, they're just setting people up. So they're basically like here. Uh, it's going to be in, really, really easy for you to get drugs in your you know neighborhoods and communities. Um, and then we're going to make sure that we over police it and bust you wherever we can get you into the system, you know, get that free labor from you or that cheap labor from you, spit you back out, make sure you don't have access to anything or the ability to vote to change it. And it's of course they're going to fall back there. Of course, the recidivism is going to be high. Of course, of course, they're going to hit those three strikes. They have no way to live otherwise. So I think about a quote sometimes, you know, and it's come up a lot over the last few years in my head was if voting made a difference, they wouldn't let you do it. And we're being proven time and time and time and time again that they are making it hard for people to vote, that clearly voting does make a difference, so they don't want people to do it. Look at all of these felons. Like, If you had all of these people that got spit up by the prison system, if they could actually vote to change that stuff, that is a massive swath of the population that that would vote against the people that put them in fucking jail in the first place. Oh yeah, no, absolutely not, they don't want them there. So that's why they have, you know, it's simple. Don't let them vote. You break the law, sorry, you forfeited your right for life to vote about anything and everything and you just have to fucking deal with it. Yeah. So let's touch a little bit on the economic and social consequences of this incarceration. Women who have been incarcerated usually face huge, significant economic and social consequences, um, including those lost wages of when they were there, lost housing of when they were um, incarcerated, and loss of social support networks. That totally makes sense. I'm sure that's very anecdotal, and I'm sure there's lots of, (laughs) you know, people that can corroborate that. Women of color who are disproportionately poor also. often bear the primary responsibility for raising their kids and are dependent on disproportionately on government um, safety nets and and to 
you know, satisfy their basic human needs through things like public housing and temporary assistance for needy family, TAMP, and Medicaid and, you know, food stamps. And therefore, they're they're very uh, impacted by government bans on these um, women who are also this is also really interesting that I didn't know about until I did the research for this. So women are also affected by policies that target the members of their families that have um, that have been in the, the criminal justice system. So if a if a woman has, you know, takes takes care of her family and has a son or a nephew or whatever that commits some drug offense, um, they can also be evicted from public housing or face, you know, um, denial of public housing if they're if someone in their household engages in criminal activity. Um, and and I didn't know this either, but many public housing authorities have uh, these lists of banned people who are not allowed on the premises. Some of these banned individuals have criminal drug uh, conventions or just one through juvie or something like that. Others were arrested but never prosecuted and convicted of any offense. Um, and once someone is on the list, he or she is not allowed on the property of the public housing authority, even if they're invited by a resident. And as a result, residents of some of the public housing properties are not allowed to invite families, members of their own family. <laughs> they're not allowed to have their family members over for, you know, dinner, Sunday dinner or whatever, because they are public housing and their, you know, cousin has a record. I mean, this system is completely stacked against these people. I mean, every bit of legislature that they have, you know, ever since, uh, you know, the, the, you know, 70s with Nixon and then the 80s with Reagan, every bit of legislation has been designed to put these people down, keep them down, keep them from voting, keep them out of any sort of governmental aid and anything. I mean, they're literally just get literally getting chewed up by the system and thrown out and essentially kind of left for dead. Yeah. I mean, left, like, yeah, basically like literally dead. like once, once you can't get public housing, you can't, you know, get on food stamps, you can't get any sort of insurance. I mean, what, what are you supposed to do? I mean, of course I, I, the system is literally just stacked against these yeah. people. Yeah. Well, and there's another uh, another really terrifying facet of this is that the war on drugs has also led to an increase in domestic violence against women because women who use drugs or, you know, maybe have their partners have drugs in the house or whatever, they might be less uh, likely to report the violence to law enforcement because they, they would fear being arrested and losing custody of their kids, which is just so fucking sad. Like if you are in a really abusive, uh, violent house and there's drugs in there, yeah, I I wouldn't call the cops to come protect it'd, me at all. It'd be hard to want to call the cops. Yeah. I mean, you know, because once once they find the drugs, the situation is just immediately worse for yeah. everyone, even if the drugs weren't even involved in the actual yeah. incident yeah. that you're calling the police for. Yeah. Like you could be sober as, you know, a nun on Sunday. <laughs> but if the cops find something like that in the household, you're fucked. Yeah, you're absolutely fucked. So um, let's tie this a little bit to um, reproductive justice. And Eric, actually, this was the other day. Um, you said something that made me think of this. I didn't even put this together until you mentioned it. But um, the whole like regulating uh, drugs and controlling what, you know, having this kind of insidious power or this kind of invisible puppet string type power of what we put in our bodies versus what's allowed and legal is, is taking on a whole new, um, like, like a whole new face with, uh, mifepristone and the abortion medication, 
just absolute overturning garbage bullshit we're seeing in the courts. Um, so it's just an interesting kind of duality there. Like we're seeing it. Of course, there's drugs and the war on drugs has never gone away. It's still very much um, prevalent. And, you know, it's just in a different form right now. But this is a different side of the war on drugs. That's really interesting. I didn't think of. Well, I think I think the interesting thing, too, about it is, you know, you, you could always make an argument that, you know, certain substances should be illegal for or at least regulated for, you know, any variety of reasons, because, you know, like even just look at alcohol, like, you know, there's a lot of laws about that. And, you know, a, a lot of them are to kind of protect you yeah. or the public from Absolutely. harm, which is fine. You know, like, you know, I don't want people you know, excessively drinking and getting hurt or causing, you know, any sort of harm to anyone else. But when they start coming for something like Mifprestone, that has a 23 year track record yeah. of helping people yeah. as a medical thing that helps people with a very, very big thing in their life. And, you know, it's not like people are recreationally taking this and going out and getting drunk on it and causing a car accident or something like that or getting, you know, high off of it and beating, you know, some helpless person or something like that. This is a drug that helps people that that now they've just been like, mm, yeah, we don't like that anymore. So sorry. Yeah. Y'all are y'all are fucked. You're fucked. Um, you know, and at least it's 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 a slippery slope. I mean, it, like what's what's next? I mean, what are they going to decide that they all of a sudden don't like next? I mean, birth control. Birth control, like it could be any of that stuff. Yeah. Or any kind of um, hormones for transgender folks. They've already proven that even regardless of the drug and how beneficial and helpful it is to a massive amount of the population and has a proven several decade long track record, they have now just pulled the rug out. They said they want their own like sparkly little utopia where everyone's just white and um, you know, 2.5 kids and a picket fence. And I feel like I've heard of that before. <laughs> I don't think it went well for the last guy that tried that. Oh, oh my God. Well, you said it, your lips to God's ears. Um, so what uh, God? <laughs> goddess's ears. Um, okay. So I did want to bring up the current state of the war on drugs. And this is, you know, this is kind of a, um, more fluid kind of discussion of the current war on drugs because, you know, obviously there's still um, a ton of stuff happening at the state and federal and local levels about, you know, incarceration and the school to prison pipeline, especially for young black men. There's all kinds of discussion about this going on right now, but it could be argued that the aggressive nature of the government, you know, in this war on drugs basically has really hindered and kind of kneecapped the DEA because uh, when drugs are illegal, a narcotic that can get you high in tiny little amounts like fentanyl is really useful because it's easier to smuggle and easier to hide. So like that's one thing I think is really interesting about how it's um, the, the war on drugs has really kneecapped the DEA's ability to respond to the fentanyl crisis that we're going through right now. Um, yeah, fentanyl is uh, really the leading cause of death for Americans aged uh, 18 to 49 right now. Opioid deaths are up over 38%, while deaths from cocaine overdose are up by 26% and meth by 35%. 
And that's that's because, you know, fentanyl, they, they're literally cutting it into yeah. everything. There is not a drug on the street right now that could that is a guarantee safe from fentanyl. I mean, we're looking at ketamine, you know, every, every powder that you could buy off the street, you have to worry that there's probably going to be fentanyl in it. I mean, and there are resources out there in at least I think most states where you can get fentanyl test strips. So if you are going to do these drugs at least get some test strips on you and make sure that you're not going to accidentally kill yourself on fentanyl. Also, uh, Narcan. Get Narcan. Narcan, Narcan is uh, supposed to be available over the counter, just like Advil or Tylenol by uh, late summer. It was just approved to do like that. Narcan is something every single person should have. We've talked a lot about how we want to keep it here, like on hand, like an EpiPen almost, because you never fucking know. Right. I mean, you could be out at a show, out at a concert or something like that, and somebody else you don't even know could start ODing and you could be the person there with Narcan that saves their life. Yeah. And and they usually do at concerts, you know, that like we were at what was it? Circle Jerks at um, yeah. Punk Rock Bowling, I think it was or something. And they and basically from the stage, they were throwing out kits of Narcan. And I think that's absolutely incredible yeah. and one of the most responsible things they 100%. can do. I mean, they're recognizing that they're that the people in the audience are probably going to indulge in some sort of drugs and they just want people to be safe. They don't want to hear they don't want to read the news the next day that so and so died at a circle jerk show because of an overdose. Yeah. Nobody wants that. Yeah, yeah. Just all around, nobody wants that. So I think basically um, one thing, Eric, that you mentioned, and maybe we can talk about this a little bit. Why do so many Americans turn to drugs? Maybe our focus on material wealth and endless media distractions, the daily stress that we endure, uh, hurtful behaviors that we've inherited over generations, and the emphasis on you know our individual selves rather than our community. It leaves us feeling like really isolated and angry and unfulfilled, um, maybe the opposite of addiction isn't just sobriety, it's connection, as the author jo- Johan Hari observed. Um, and I think that's true. Like, like it really, it seems like um, Americans turn to drugs just from the ills of society in this capitalistic, you know, anti-community focus on the individual, I got mine, so fuck everyone else situation. Um this it's really interesting that this author said the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety, it's connection. I think that's absolutely true. Um, you know, and it reminds me of, you know, another another quote um that was basically like I don't have a problem with drugs. I have a problem with reality. Yeah. I mean, re- like, let's be real. Reality sucks. Like there, there are so many things going on in the world for so many people right now that are terrible. So it's 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 easy to want that quick. It's the whole that, heroin nineties thing. Escape. Yeah, it's like, the whole uh, grunge movement right there, wrapped up in a nutshell. Yeah, wrapped up in a little baggie. Oh, um, geez. <laughs> you know, and and I I think too there's there's another quote that I always kind of liked. It was you know about uh, it was an acronym for the word sober which really stands for son of a bitch, everything's real. <laughs> and I think that's absolutely true. Yeah. I mean, cause sometimes real life just sucks. So it's, it's easy for people to want to, you know, unwind after work and, you know, smoke a joint, have a glass of wine, or maybe it's, you know, the weekend and they're going to a show, but they're really, really tired from their, their busy work week. So they do a couple little bumps of cocaine, you know, have a good time. Well, guess what? Those couple little bumps can land you these mandatory minimum sentences yeah like just because you were trying to relax but only if you're black yeah that's a fact yeah yeah that's just a fact yeah 
Um, yeah. Okay. So Eric, why don't you run through, um, we're going to give you, um, all of you reclaimers, a few tips and tricks about, um, what you can do to protect yourself if, and when you ever need to, um, do so when you are stopped by a cop or someone's at your door or whatever. Uh, we're going to include this little like safety booklet from the ACLU in the show notes. So make sure you check that out. Even if you don't ever anticipate on breaking the law, no one, no one anticipates it, but you never know in the future with what's happening in Florida and DeSantis having his own cop force and all those things. You never know. If you're not a criminal yet, they're going to make a lot of turning you into a criminal. There's going to be a lot of ways that we become criminals in the, in the future. And I think we just landed on like seven lists, Eric, but, (laughs) um, landed, I've been comfortable on those for a while. Sitting pretty on those lists. (laughs) Okay. Eric, walk us through some tips about, um, knowing our rights. So the very first thing to do when you're talking to a cop is don't talk to the fucking cop. Don't talk. You have, you, you do not have to answer anything they say. You can, the very, one of the very, very the first right things, to remain silent. right. You absolutely have the right, the right to remain silent and take that right. And if you're a passenger in a car and you're pulled over, the passengers have the right to remain silent too. Everyone always has the right to remain silent. And so you want to ask them, am I free to go? And if they say no, then follow up with, all right, well, I want to remain silent. Don't say anything and the very you next also don't have to tell them where you're from because i know a lot of people you don't who are to... immigrants are freaked out about that yeah you don't have to so. tell them anything you don't have to tell them where you're from how long you're you're in the country you don't have to go into any sort of immigration status or anything also just be calm and like just sit sit there and and don't run don't resist don't obstruct just sit there and zip it and if they're giving you a ticket Sign the fucking ticket and deal with it later. Do not refuse to sign it because if you refuse to sign that ticket, they can and probably will put you in handcuffs. I didn't know that. Yep. If you refuse to sign a document, a ticket that they give you, they can immediately arrest you. Yeah. And you don't have to tell them like what you're doing, where you're traveling from. Um, like Eric said, if you wish to remain silent, just make sure you say so out loud so they can't twist any of that. Um, start, start with that yeah, though. Start with don't, it. don't loudly like, and pronounce like right. enunciate. Do not like have a conversation with them for a couple of minutes and they start asking you questions and then, Oh, I want to remain silent. Well, Some that people, looks, that looks shady. It as does shit. look shady, but sometimes you need to give them your name. So that's one thing you can do, but your name is the only thing. If they ask you some, some places, some States and some localities require just the name, but all you need to do is give them your name. That's it. And you also don't have to consent to a search of yourself or your shit, <laughs> but the, the cops may pat you down if they suspect a weapon, but um, refusing consent might not stop the officer from carrying out a search against your will. Uh, but if you make a timely objection before or during the search, it might help you preserve your rights any later in any later legal proceedings. Um, also just make sure, you know, if you're arrested by police, you always, 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 no matter what they say, have a right to a government appointed lawyer. If you can't have afford one on your own. So in short, I mean, to kind of sum that up, I mean, there's five things to remember, uh, well, six, I guess, um, when you're, when you're stopped by a cop, first thing, like I keep saying is just don't talk to them. Do not talk to them for any reason. You don't legally have to. Um, then firstly, you know, you want to ask them in very plain, clear, distinct language. Am I free to go? Then whatever happens from that happens. The next thing is 
I want to remain silent and shut the fuck up. Yep. That's all you need to say. They're going to try to badger you into saying something, but just shut the fuck up. And you also have a right to a phone call. We'll get to that. Okay. Um, but also always from the very get go, I do not consent to a search. Like Sarah said, that might not actually stop them, but it will cover your ass later. Yeah. Um, an illegal, an illegal uh, battle if it comes to that. Uh, and then lastly, I want to talk to a lawyer. I want. Yep, absolutely. Say that because, I want to make a phone call. like she said, everyone that gets arrested in this country has the right to a government appointed lawyer. They will say everything for you. So as soon as you say that, you, you, I mean, you're done. You've you don't have to say you, anything. You're else. done. You you can literally just zip it and just wait. Um, but like Sarah says, you are also entitled to a phone call. However, if you call anyone other than a lawyer, oh yeah, I forgot about that. They are recording that. They will record those conversations. So if the, you call your mom or whatever, yep, nope, they're call recording a lawyer, it. Call, call a lawyer, lawyer. first, uh, first and always, always. Write down the name of a lawyer and stick it in your wallet. Well, that's what we that's what we do during protests. Uh, that's one of the things that I know I did during the George Floyd protests. Um, I before I would leave, I wrote the literally all I would do is write the phone number of a lawyer on my or like a, a bail fund or, you know, a, a community mutual aid um, fund action for protesters. And um, I put that on my on my arm in uh, Sharpie because that's the only call I will be making. <laughs> but that's really interesting. Yeah. Don't call your mom. Don't call your significant other. Don't call your sister. Call her. Don't call your buddies and say you're not coming to the party because guess what? You might have just sent <gasps> the cops to your buddy's that's house. That's a good point. Damn. Yeah. Be a good, be a good friend. Um, okay. So one last thing. Um, if the cops are at your door, um, I did a little research on that. Do, do you know anything about if the cops are at your door? If the cops are at your door, you do not have to open the door. You can talk to them through the door. And if they insist on coming in, you make damn well that you insist that they provide you a search warrant that will be signed and identification. And identification. But the, the search warrant will be signed by a county judge and uh, it will have the name of the person at the address that they're looking for. If that's not you, they can get fucked. Yeah. Like, yeah. but yeah, if the you, you never have to open the door for them, if they have a warrant, have them put it up to the window or slide like, yeah. it under the door so you can take a look at it. But for under no circumstance, open the door, because if you open the door, they can say, oh, I see something I see, back there. I smell, weed. I smell this. And boom, they got probable cause. Now they're in your house. Yeah. And even if uh, the offers have a warrant and they come in, remember, 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 don't fucking talk to cops you have the, the right to remain silent. Yep. Don't answer questions. Don't speak to the officers while they're in your house conducting the search. Just stand right there, quiet and silent, and just don't do shit. Observe what they do, where they yeah. go, what they write take. It, write it all down. Write everything down as soon as you can. Um, take note of everything. Oh, that's a good idea. Go grab like a pen and paper. Yeah, they might not let you, but as soon as they leave... Yeah. Right I mean, if down. they're not detaining you, you can follow them around the house. Yeah. But yeah. don't say anything. No matter what they're taking, no matter what they're looking at, don't say anything. Yeah. I just wanted to thank you for joining me on this 420 episode. <laughs> Actually, shit, I do have shit to do. 
I need to go get a beer. <laughs> then I'll have a six pack and nothing to do. Oh my God. That's a little shout out to one of our friends. Um, okay. So let's close with this quote from the ACLU, which I think just sums up my entire uh, view on the war on drugs. The war on drugs is a feminist issue and just like where we're headed and what we what we just need to know and where we should stand on this issue. We must reform this country's drug policies to stop fighting our own citizens and instead enact policies that help those individuals who need mental mental and physical health care to cure addictions. Approximately 80% of women in state prisons have substance abuse problems and that provide jobs and economic opportunity for all members of our society so that dealing drugs is no longer the best paying job available. It is time for our government to work to improve the lives of all members of our community rather than continuing to fight this war against poor women of color and their children. Boom. I would actually drop this mic, but it was expensive. It was really expensive. (laughs) That's it for this week, my loves. I hope you liked it. Thanks so much for tuning in. Thank you, Eric, for joining us. Thanks for having me. And again, don't talk to cops. Don't talk to cops. Get some Narcan and get some fentanyl test strips. Be safe. If you're new here, I'm so glad you joined us. If, if you are not signed up for Reclaim the Newsletter, you can sign up at the website, reclaimeffingeverything.com. That's reclaim, E-F-F-I-N-G, everything.com. And please, if you enjoy this podcast, give it a five-star rating and review. That would make me so happy. I'm going to put all of the sources and the ACLU's um, booklet and everything in the show notes. So please make sure you check those out. Like Eric said, don't talk to cops, get Narcan, and just be fucking safe, okay? We love you so much. And until next week, girl fucking power. (laughs) 